Let's find some partnerships between, uh, you know, maybe classic extraction companies and new, more green companies. The last time I checked, in order to have lithium for your electric car batteries, still has to be a lithium mine somewhere. And uh, so there, are, there is still extraction that has to happen. So let's just apply some logic and reason, maybe tamp down the finger pointing and let's say, okay, look, we're trying to do this. Let's all point in the same direction. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis, joined as always by President and Founder of eRenewable, the Mr. Mike Niemer. And Mike, here we are in the first week of February, and uh, for those of us who enjoyed the Super Bowl over the weekend, let's put it this way, Mike, we enjoyed the actual Super Bowl. I don't know about you, but I certainly did enjoy the outcome of the Super Bowl, Mike Niemer. Well, I've got to admit, even though I came from the Kansas area because of my age, I was pulling for Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can so certainly I, uh, appreciate that. So I appreciate his 43 uh, year old enthusiasm and uh, football expertise at that age. So absolutely. Uh, I went for age over beauty. How's that? I can appreciate that. Mike Niemer. I can appreciate that. And of course, uh, listen, regardless of what went down in the Super Bowl, whether you're pulling for Tom Brady, Pat Mahomes or wherever, Whatever side you fell on, that did not stop us over here at the Green Insider from powering on with episode 23 of the program, and we're very excited about who we have on. Of course, we're always excited about what's going on here at the Green Insider over here at eRenewable. Another great guest that we're going to bring to you here in just a little bit, Brett Estep from Tanaska Power Services Group. He's a senior director for their Renewable Energy Advisory Group. Uh, he'll be joining us here in just a little bit. Great stuff from Mr. Estep and his 15, 20 years on the renewable side as well as the power power industry as as well. So we'll get to him in just a little bit. But of course, uh, let's take care of a few things like we like to do each and every week here on the Green Insider Podcast. Uh, before we get to a very special, um, we got a very special NEMA News Minute to get into this week from Deputy Director Donna Foy. Uh, of course, we usually do these every other week. And of course, we had one last week, but uh, some big news coming out of the NEMA group. And um, listen, Mike, we've talked about this. We talked about it with Steve Shepard, uh, Executive Director over at NEMA, as far as how they have had to pivot being, you know, the conferences. And I know you've been to your fair share of name of conferences. And of course, with the pandemic, COVID pretty much sidelining everything, we were hoping that maybe in 2021, we would see that be brought back in a live capacity. But uh, as you'll hear from Donna here in just a little bit, NEMA has had to err on the side of caution, which of course, we certainly understand as well over here at the Green Insider. Yes, it sure uh, makes this feel like the 14th month of 2020, doesn't it? Because nothing seems to have changed at this point with regards to, uh, the conferences and the activities for conventions around the country. And you do have to err on the side of the caution. Just too much damage can be done with the group gathering. So, you know, we were, uh, you know, unfortunately for us, we were planning on attending, but yeah, we certainly were. Now, uh, as you'll hear about the next conference, uh, we'll see you the next time around, NEMA. No, we certainly will. And without further ado, this very special NEMA News Minute. This is Deputy Director of NEMA, Miss Donna Foy. This is Donna Foy, Deputy Director of the North American Energy Markets Association. We appreciate the opportunity to provide a special NEMA update for the Green Insiders listeners. 
Last week, NAMA's Board of Directors made the very difficult decision to cancel the 2021 Spring Conference in Austin due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. The health, safety, and well-being of everyone involved in the conference is our highest priority. In addition, it became apparent that the number of company-imposed travel restrictions for attendees, speakers, and sponsors alike would have greatly compromised our ability to deliver a quality conference on par with attendee expectations. I'm happy to report, however, that Uniper, which was to have been the host this spring, has already agreed to host the 2022 Spring Conference in Austin. We will provide more details about that in the very near future. So we're turning our attention to the 2021 Fall Conference to be hosted by Customized Energy Solutions, which will be held in early October in Philadelphia. The weather should be beautiful, will feature a lot of great outdoor events, and hopefully the pandemic will be fading in our rearview mirrors by then. We'll provide more information about that conference shortly. In the meantime, we're continuing with our virtual presentation series. As Steve Shepard mentioned last week, our next presentation will be a panel discussion addressing the challenge and opportunity of decarbonization on February 10th at 3 o'clock Eastern. The panelists are Chris Knittle from MIT, Nicole Boucher from the New York ISO, and Tara Fowler from XL Energy. Brett Estep from NAMA's Board of Directors will moderate. I'm sure this discussion will be lively and informative. That's followed up on February 24th with a presentation on the Energy Storage Value Proposition from the Bright Knight team, a relatively new NAMA member. This is a soup-to-nuts presentation covering everything from technologies and storage selection considerations to monetization of storage attributes. Since storage is a particularly hot topic nowadays, I'm sure this will be an outstanding presentation. Last but not least, Evergy Inc. issued a request for proposals for the acquisition of long-term dispatchable renewable energy resources with a minimum size of 50 megawatts, together with all associated environmental and renewable energy attributes. Preference will be given to solar projects that attain a commercial operation date between June 1 and December 31st of 2023. Notices of intent to bid are due on February 10th, 2021, with proposals due March 5th, 2021. Please see NEMA's website, NEMA.com, for more information. That's it for now. We look forward to giving another update soon. Thanks, Fred. Thank you so much for that, Don. And again, stay tuned to NEMA.com. And, of course, they've got great stuff going on over there with the webinar series. And, and um, you know, they continue to do uh, the virtual learning, the virtual presentations, which, as you know, Mike, you and I have had, had sat in on one or two of them so far. And, of course, you can always stay up to date on everything that's going on here at NEMA, obviously on their website, but here at the NEMA News Minute on the Green Insider Podcast. So, once again, Totally understand. Uh, hope to see everybody in the fall, and hopefully things have uh, you know somewhat resumed or somewhat gotten back to some semblance of normalcy. Speaking of normalcy, listen, things are full speed ahead over here at eRenewable. You guys know about the podcast. You guys know about what we're doing here at The Green Insider, one of the fastest-growing uh, podcasts in the renewable space. But, Mike, why don't you tell the folks at home what we're doing over here at eRenewable. Thank you, Fred. As always, you know, eRenewable was founded to bring the PPA and VPPA auctions to the marketplace, trying to bring energy efficiency to that process. Along with that, we're working with my, on microgrid projects, renewable natural gas, unbundled RECs, energy efficiency uh, LED lighting, and energy master plans. And so uh, if any of those needs or something you're in the market for, please give us a call at one 866 renew one 
it's simply email me at mike at eRenew.net. So with that, Fred, I'll throw it back to you. Thank you, as always, for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. And again, you had to pivot in 2020. And again, you being no stranger to you know, adjusting on the fly after 40 years in the uh, in the power industry yourself, oil and gas. Mike, you've been nimble on your feet. Don't let that, you know, you're like the Tom Brady of the renewable energy industry. Age is nothing but a number for Mike Niemer. Is again, he's been as nimble as all get out in 2020 and is leading the charge uh, here at E-Renewable in 2021. And we're very excited about what we've got going on. So without further ado, Mike, and this is somebody that uh, you've known for a little while, Mr. Brett Eastep, been on the southern side of things over at uh, Georgia Power, over at Southern Power, and then made the jump over to Tenasca a couple years ago. Great stuff from him. Very interesting stuff, though, too, as far as, you know, kind of where he sees things going with renewable energy and what might be the next domino to fall. Without further ado, please welcome to the program from the Tenasca Power Services Group, Senior Director for Renewable Energy with them, Mr. Brett Estep. Spent almost 20 years over there on the uh, power side of things over at both Georgia Power and Southern Power. And so were you doing any renewable energy stuff over there or was, was Tenasca kind of your first foray into the renewable energy side of things? Oh, no, no. I was, I've been a long-time renewable guy, so gotcha. I caught caught the wave when I was at Southern Company. Um, so probably I was, I spent about 15 years with Southern uh, and then was, you know, I had various other careers before that, some in energy as well. But my, during my 15 years at Southern, uh, the last, I don't know, maybe six or seven or so of those were at Southern Power on the wholesale side, the wholesale competitive side. So we were all over the country. And at that point, um, Southern had a huge balance sheet and in-house tax appetite. So we we were buying renewable projects as fast as we could buy them. We were uh, buying mass at 2010. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Your phone was cutting out a little bit. What happened in 2010? Oh, no. I said that goes all the way back to 2010. Okay, gotcha. To 2010. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Okay. Um, all right. So, again, and so, like I said, and so you've been, okay, so you've been on the renewable side of things. And so what was kind of your, and we'll, like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get into a little bit of everything here. But was it something you just saw with the markets, the way they were moving? Or, or what kind of was, was your, uh, you know, inclination is to start delving into the, the renewable side of things? Well, you know, on at the Southern Company side, Tom Fanning, who's still the CEO, was the CEO back then. You know, his uh, favorite phrase <clears throat> was uh, "all arrows in the quiver." So Tom was always looking for, um, I guess, ways to deploy capital across the spectrum. And and look, at, at that time when renewable energy um, investment tax credits, production tax credits were, there's a lot of good money to be, to be made there. Um, I think it was just a smart way to deploy. Uh, corporate capital at the time. And so that vehicle to do that was Southern Power. And I just happened to be at Southern Power at the time. And so that we we were out in the market looking to buy natural gas plants and and we were developing all sorts of stuff that we had plans to develop coal, all kinds of things. And, and of course, Southern was doing a lot at the time. We had a clean coal plant in Mississippi that didn't end up panning out. We had new nuclear units going in Georgia at the time carbon capture. I mean, you name it, we had all kinds of stuff that just kind of grew from there. So we just kind of adapted to what the opportunity was. But, and, and, but the one thing is too, and we, we've had, uh, do you know, Tim Eccles over, uh, over in Georgia? Yeah. So we had, we had, uh, Tim, yeah. we yeah. had Tim on, uh, 
I don't know, probably back the in the uh, commissioner, right? Yes, yes yeah, yes, the commissioner. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so we had him. Oh, sorry about that. So we had him on, and you know, one of the things about the you know the southern region, especially in Georgia, um, is is you know he talked about you know folks you know getting used to the solar side of things, getting used to wind, and and obviously being on the the you know right side of the aisle, at least from a political standpoint. You know, again, no one's going to get them confused with being uh, the most you know renewable friendly group. Um, but was it a hard sell from a you know being in that region or being that demographic of the country uh, as far as renewables were concerned and, and getting folks on board with it or from a again like you said from an investment standpoint it made sense and so that was obviously the was that kind of the first item up for bid as far as okay let's attack that and then we'll let the, the public know kind of this is the direction we're headed it's more the latter if you look at how southern power fits within the southern company uh regime it is that expeditionary force in a way so that goes and plays all over the country so we you know our first biomass project was in texas our first solar project was in new mexico our first wind project was in uh, uh oklahoma so you know southern power was able to go outside because it was uh, uh the sort of non-regulated wholesale um not the regulated at the time it was gulf power mississippi power alabama power georgia power so at the time Southern Power is free to go play in other markets. It's all shareholder money, not regulated rate-based money. And uh, so that was just the way for Southern. I think the, some of this might be revisionist history, but some of it, I think, was deliberate strategy that they said, hey, okay, look, if we want to start doing this in around 2010 and then bring it home to deploy in the regulated footprints, Southern Power is the right vehicle to do that. They can take more risks. They can spend shareholder money instead of ratepayer money, et cetera. They can play in other markets. So I was there during that time, and that's what we did. Um, and uh, we did it all over the country. So uh, it was, and then consequently, that knowledge is then embedded inside Southern. And then the company, the shareholders, the rating agencies, the regulators, you know, all coming all the way back to Commissioner Eccles, they start to see the demand and then also the ability for Southern to execute on it. And so now you see Georgia is a, a very, uh, highly ranked as far as deployed megawatts um, solar state now. So now the the contrary point to all of that is it, this is still a very heavily regulated market. You know, the Southeast is a dark market. Um, you know, there's no transparency. There's no price discovery. Uh, there's very cozy regulator relationships with the incumbent utilities. It does not lend itself to innovation or progress and certainly doesn't lend itself also to low prices. So that is where I think this, I would like to see more disruption there personally. What kind of knowledge did you have of the renewable market before you guys uh, dove into it? And obviously you took well to it because here you are now 11 years later uh, leading the charge over for Tanaska. What was it about the renewable markets that appealed to you? Yeah, you know, look, my my academic background, my professional background to that point has been mostly environmental and so, you know, thinking about things from a big systems standpoint, um, broad sustainability, that's something I've been doing <laughs> since grad school. Um, and renewable energy and this intersection of an energy career and an environmental, uh, really hard science career from an environmental side for a long time, those mesh together really well in the current state. And uh I don't think that's one of those ones where I had that preordained at all. It just has migrated that way from an adaptability standpoint, and it's worked out really well. So I, I think from a company standpoint um, and from a personal view, I, I do think 
the more that we can move decision-making to the customer and less from the utility, the more information enables people to make decisions, the better. And I think the advent of renewables, a lot of that incentivized and subsidized, uh, I think in a very appropriate way by the federal government, is, it creates a pathway for end use customers, CNI customers, which is what I almost exclusively focus on now, allows them to take their take control of their own destiny to sure, serve their shareholders, uh, any number of stakeholders that, that want them to be more sustainable, that want them to price in um, you know, all the negative externalities that come with various energy sources. So to me, it's just a very system way of thinking of things. It very much leans back on my background academically. And I think it's just a, it's just, it's just a really interesting evolution of energy markets and then all markets of, you know, you take the music industry, publishing, television, they've all been disrupted where the end consumer has more and more control, more and more choice. And when you give that to people, they, they choose somewhat different things. And I think that's where we are in energy and people are choosing renewables. So to me, that's, um, I think, very natural, uh, a, a very natural form of disruption that also spawns a lot of innovation. What was it about Tenasca? What was it about that offering and, and what they've been able to do and just kind of their background that uh, made you decide to make the leap over there and, and join their renewable group? Yeah, I mean, so about two years ago, Southern, you know, capital investment at big investor-owned utilities has cycles. Uh, Southern was going through a cycle, reshuffling some of the chairs on the deck, moving things around, moving people around. I was getting ready to move over to the gas company, Southern Company Gas, really in an LNG more focused role, uh, but also had the opportunity to say, hey, look, if I wanted to tap out, I, I'd been there 15 years. I've done several other things, worked at Oglethorpe. And, you know, we can talk about <laughs> my adventures in the ski industry and other things uh, if we want, but, uh, and I had the opportunity to change. Um, so I, I put out some feelers um, and one of those was to Tenasca. And I have known those guys for a long time. Uh, Kevin Smith, Curry Aldridge, Keith Emery. I mean, just folks who've been around and just, just stellar reputation across Tenasca. Great place in the industry, privately held. So different, obviously, than what I was doing at Southern. And um, when I called uh, to just sort of chat with them, see what was going on, they said, hey, look, we're actually looking to start a renewable advisory to help commercial industrial customers really kind of take control of their destiny, make their own decisions around renewables. You know, it, that's you know, the Schneiders and Edison's and Levelton's of the world are providing pathways for that. Tenasca does it a little differently. And uh, Tenasca has its pedigree to do it with. They said, we want to start up something to serve people a little differently. You know, maybe you could come over and be that guy to start that up. So I did. And it's been great. They're fantastic people. Just great human beings, great at what they do. It's been a nice change to go from the big investor-owned uh, utility. I had a great time at Southern, uh, but to go to a privately held company, um, it's been real. It's been a nice uh, change. Yeah, you know, Brett, uh, Tenasca, you're right, has a great reputation in the marketplace. I mean, any of us that have been in energy for a number of years, we've all known that. So you probably made a good move for yourself there. Starting that renewable advisory desk at Tenasca. What's involved in that? What's involved in your advisory services you're providing the CNI customer? Yeah, for sure. You know, I boil it down and, and keep it super simple. Well, first off, Mike, I mean, you're right. The, the reputation side, I'd heard the same too, but now on the inside, it's legit. And so that's been really, uh, really interesting to see. Uh, so I'll just confirm that from the inside as well. 
on the renewal advisory side, you know, look, there are, you guys do a little bit of this. A lot of folks do it. There's plenty of good folks out there to do it, but there are just an unlimited number of customers or potential clients that are looking to do things. And for those of us who have been in the industry a while, the energy industry, you know, it's complicated and it's rapidly changing right now. And most of the commitments you have to make are long-term and uh, not all of them, but a lot of them. And so helping folks wrestle with that, I bring a different perspective as a, as an ecologist, as an energy professional, um, mixing those together. I think that's been a unique place. But what Tanaska really was trying to do starting it up is say, hey, look, we're, we're, the, we're the largest third-party energy manager in the country. We are managing assets, uh, third-party assets for folks every interval, every market, 24-7, 365, all over the country. And so what we do is not theoretical uh, consulting, it's, it's born out of very practical energy management. And, and so I tell folks, look, what, what I do is I help you save money and do good. You know, we're going to help you lower your bills um, and do good, whatever that means to you. If you, you want additionality, not additionality. You want to buy unbundled recs or not. You know, there's lots of different ways to get there, but those two guiding principles, and then you apply very pragmatic a very pragmatic approach from Tanaska's background that's not just, like I said, not an academic theoretical exercise. We're a team of folks who are in the market every day. And it's just a different level of uh, involvement. It's a different perspective. It's a different level of credibility. Um, and that's not to disparage any of my peers in the, in the marketplace, because I think there are a lot of folks who do really do, do what we do really well. And I think there's room for a lot of folks to do it, but, um, that's it. You know, the challenge, I think, Mike, is, um, you know, th these are really slow sales cycles and there's a lot of education involved to get uh, big industrial customers to sort of think through the implications. And so, um, you know, Tanaska sees the long term. We're not chasing quarterly earnings. And so that's been a nice sort of refreshing. It's been just a very deliberate march to bring on a good mass of clients and, and help them. Uh, on their on their journey to to um, really take control of their own energy footprint and then also their own sustainability footprint. Well, you know, just to uh, piggyback on what you said, first on slow moving markets. You know, I was forty years in the oil and gas industry, and uh, moving to <laughs> moving to this market, it is quite an adjustment to feel that. So I can uh, experience that every day. With regards to um, what you do for some of your CNI customers. For those of our listeners, we have some listeners that aren't necessarily energy people. Would you say that what you try to do is that's so much different than the rest of the advisory companies is you find a bunch of CNI customers that want to have a physical position, but they're not big enough to be in the wholesale space to do that. You aggregate your different CNI customers together, and then you can put a position on it to NASCA's name, and then you divvy those out accordingly to your customers. Is something like that? a simpler way well, for I mean, that's novice sort of, to understand yeah. that. Yeah, I think that's one tool. You know, I'd say that's not the most common tool, but that's one. There are certainly a lot of customers who don't have enough energy demand to really uh, stand on their own. So they need to aggregate together. You know, look, I mean, Tanaska doesn't want to be uh, just a credit supplier into the marketplace. And so that becomes the break point in a lot of those is uh, credit worthiness. But the idea of aggregating folks together is certainly one of the tools in our toolbox. I think the big difference maker in what we do is, is another analogy I use for people is that, you know, we're, we're more of a guide than an advisor, really. You know, the difference between a, a consultant or a broker 
uh, they, they have roles, um, and, and some of them are, are very legitimate and necessary. Uh, an advisor, even though we call ourselves advisors a lot, I think there's this point where, you know, if you're going to go raft the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, you don't want someone to just throw a map at you and say, go get it, or even help you sign a contract. You want someone in the boat with you to float the river and who's been there before and done it. And I think that's what we do that's different. And then we've been there. I've been on the M&A side. I've been on the long-term structure origination side, worked for big regulators. Uh, I've done the permitting. I've done the development. And and now I bring all of that expertise um, to bear on behalf of our clients. And so really, we, we take a very patient approach. We embed with our customers deeply. Um, it's not heavy transaction. It's very heavy touch. Um, sometimes, like you said, painfully slow. Uh, but that's where the value is, is, sitting on their side of the table and having someone who's, you know, rafted that river, you know, fallen out, had the bumps and bruises, but can help them, uh, th- that brings all that expertise to bear to them to help them know that they're signing a contract that's at market or better, know that their price is sustainable, you know, can see the pitfalls that are coming and so, yeah, one of those is aggregated deals. We do a lot of behind the meter stuff, which tends to be a lot more involved. It's like building someone a custom home as opposed to going and buying a track home out of a neighborhood. You know, that might be more the VPPA model. Happy to do that as well. But we do a lot of behind the meter stuff with heavy industry. Those folks are trying to reshape their future. They're trying to adapt. And I think that's just one of the places where our credibility and patience pays off. When you surveyed the scene over there at NASC and kind of what their renewable desk looked like, what was it that intrigued you and what was it about it that uh, you thought you could really make a difference? And- yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not readily apparent on the website and certainly not to a lot of folks, I think, in the industry. And so I'll, I'll explain it a little bit. So, you know, the projects that are self-developed by Tenasca, like Nobles uh, and, and an array of solar and battery projects and a number of partnerships that have been um, released in the press with both uh, Capital Dynamics and Axiona. Those are our development portfolios that we've we've signed. So um, you can think about Tenasca. I really think about it in three three big uh, groups. Uh, Tenasca Marketing Ventures. That's our our gas marketing group, um, TMV. And so they they're absolutely one of the leaders in North America on moving molecules around. So I'm I'm separate from them. Tenasca really. Uh, Strategic Development and Acquisition, SDNA, we call it. That's the group that's doing nobles, that's doing these development partnerships that continues to press in on wind and solar and battery development. Um, they uh, continue to, they, they do the M&A work, they do project development, they do development partnerships, development services. <clears throat> I'm separate from them. I'm, in the, I'm on the power services side. So I actually don't, I, I rarely bring our own development team into one of my processes. Uh, I'm on the power services side where there's third-party energy management. We're by far the premier and largest energy manager, third-party energy manager. So everything from scheduling and billing and QSE services in ERCOT to trading, optimization management, all of that. I, I run our advisory inside that group so I can be independent. And that's a key part to me, even though the corporate uh, Tenasca corporate folks, and mostly in Omaha, continue to march down the road and make their own investment decisions, either with Tenasca money or partner money. I'm separate. I'm independent. My clients are my CNI clients, and I, I really think about it almost like a, an investment company. 
uh, let's say Fidelity, you know, you might have a third party advisor inside Fidelity. They might have a Fidelity email that could represent you, give you financial planning advice. They could also sell you Fidelity branded, you know, ETFs or, or uh, mutual funds, but they could also source outside of the, of the Fidelity brand. And that's the way I do it. I make sure my clients know I'm, I work for them, uh, but I can source internally to Tenasco, you know, off of, let's say, a Nobles or anything else we're developing. But mostly what I do is I bring the market to bear to compete for my clients' work. So you've got a lot of autonomy in your role with Tenasca. And is that, I mean, was that probably one of the things that intrigued you the most about jumping over to Tenasca? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and look, that's just really unique. And it's not lost on me that, um, you know, that it's, it's really optimized for independence. And um, one of those big reasons why that's possible is that's the way Tenasca is organized. It's, it's very organization light. It's not, it's not administrative. I mean, particularly coming from a big, you know, one of the premier investor owned utilities and Southern company, just all of the bureaucracy that, that in many ways is necessary. Right. Uh, but some of that just grows on itself over time. And um, there's a weight to that. Uh, at Tenasca, there's none of that. Uh, there's just the, the bare minimum. I mean, what's necessary. And then we're, because we're privately held and we, we do things very intentionally with low overhead, uh, very lean on everything we do, then you're judged on performance and there's not ladder climbing and, you know, game playing and all of that. It's, we're all on mission to do what we need to do. It's very transparent and how we do it. Good people. And so, yeah, um, you know, when I left, I built, a, built out my home office uh, before the pandemic. I was already working from home and, you know, in the airport. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, I, I have managed large teams in the past. So I'm, I make sure my management that's in Dallas knows what's going on. Um, and then, yeah, I run, I run my own little, little shop and um, it's great. I really do enjoy it. It's a lot of autonomy, as you said, but the accountability and transparency is there. And, you know, it probably wouldn't work for someone who's, you know, fresh out of uh, business school. Uh, you'd right. need a little bit more oversight. But, you know, I've been around the block a few times, so it works. Do people have to be sold on the idea that, that Tenasca is in the renewable business? Because how well understood are they in, in the renewable side of things? Yeah, I think in the industry – you know, as you guys know, I mean, Mike referenced it, you know, the name, the brand name of Tenasca is, is very strong. Even though we've only been around, I say, 35 or so years, I don't have the numbers totally right. But, um, you know, and certainly had a, a big run, like, like a lot of folks did 30, 30 plus years ago in the natural gas, uh, you know, combined cycle combustion turbine development side of things. Um, you know, we've we've adapted just like the industry has. And um and so I think folks in the industry, certainly folks in the gas industry and the power industry know Tenasca and there's no question about that. And they also know all of the other little things we're doing on the, uh, I say little things, less mainstream historically, but wind, solar development, we've been very busy in that over the years. Batteries are a huge piece of what we do now, grid scale batteries, uh, both standalone and paired with solar. I think when you get outside of that, so for my clients, um, you know, the, there's not that name brand recognition for Tenasca. Um, and that that is one of my challenges. You know, the name just doesn't immediately uh, invoke that, but that's okay. Um, it, it takes a very little bit of talking for folks to understand what, what we do and how we are. I think, you know, one of the questions you bring up is, okay, 
maybe it's implied in there. You know, are, are you are you only a renewables company? Is everything you do just you know green plated, as I call it? You know, is it just green inside and out and all around? Um, and I think my personal philosophy is, you know, that you know there everything has a cost, and there is no free lunch. And that we're all in a process of sort of marching our way through sustainability. So, yeah, we still own natural gas fire plants. Yes, we still trade natural gas. Um, but the way that that is resolved, I think, if we can step up and out of the emotions of it, is what we are at our core is an optimization company. So we optimize. We optimize all kinds of assets all across the country. We opt- I optimize options and opportunities for my clients. And optimization, optimization rather, and sustainability are inherently tied together. And that's really what we need. What we, in order for us to have a sustainable power grid is what we need is deep, deep optimization. And I think when you have one size fits all solutions and dogma that comes in and drives people certain ways and, and, and companies are canceled because they won't issue a statement on X, Y, or Z, then you let dogma overrun what really is an optimized path forward. And uh, that's what I try to get folks to see. Look, not everybody sees it, and that's all right. What's going to be the biggest challenge is we're going to start to see more of these oil and gas companies in the next five to ten years. They're going to have to make that transition if they want to survive. Maybe the Exxons, maybe the Chevrons, maybe the Shells of the world. Are what's going to be kind of what? What do you expect to see? And of course, you being a a member of uh, NEMA as well. Maybe these are things that you've already had some discussions with uh, behind the scenes, but how is that transition going to take place? And what do you think the acceptance is going to be as more and more oil and gas energy companies try to make that transition into the renewable side? That's an interesting question. A lot of my clients are on the heavy industry side. So oil and gas, petrochem, mines and minerals, you know, there's some pragmatism to that and that they have heavy electrical loads. It allows, um, uh, it affords you some a lot more options to pull levers on the renewable side. They also recognize that they're in the crosshairs from shareholder groups and regulators and potentially the uh, the new administration. And so I think they they recognize that there's a lot they need to do. Some of that also think you know as an ecologist, it's a recognition of like we talked about before the negative externalities that have always existed in some of those industries. They're they're wrestling with it. Not that they haven't always. But I think it's now being priced into markets. Um, there's a recognition of long-term sort of fiduciary responsibility from, from boards. I, my only concern when I look at those is, <clears throat> you know, many of these are my clients and I, I find a lot of sincerity in the people that are trying to say, look, we're, we're trying to do these things. We're trying to move the ball forward. We're trying to make progress. What gets lost, I think, in the emotion and, you know, news organizations and sensationalist uh, blog posts is that it takes time to do these things and and that there are costs to everything. If we went 100% renewable, there are costs. If I build, you know, as an ecologist, if I, I can't, I can stand there and say, well, look, if you, you know, carpet that entire desert with solar panels, that might be great unless you're an animal that lives in that desert. Uh, or unless you're someone who likes to go hike in the desert and see unspoiled wilderness that is the desert. Right. Everything has a cost. There, there is no free lunch. And so I think as a, as a society, as an industry, as a country, we have to wrestle with that and allow room for that wrestling to happen. 
and for that dialogue and, uh, and create pathways for the oil and gas majors and the chemical companies, et cetera, the plastics manufacturers to say, okay, let's at least all get pointed in the same direction and start making those steps. Uh, my personal view is that I think the Biden administration, you know, there are, there are, there are always fringe pieces everywhere. I think they absolutely will be uh, mindful of that. You know, I think one of the advantages of Biden in this case is that he has been around for so long. There's lots of negatives, I think, to being, you know, essentially a career politician. But the upside of that is, boy, you've really learned how to compromise. And I think that's what we have to have here. You know, let's point, let's find some partnerships between, uh, you know, maybe classic extraction companies and, and new, more green companies. You know, I mean, the last time I checked, in order to have lithium for your <laughs> electric car batteries, still has to be a lithium mine somewhere. No. And uh, so there, are, there is still extraction that has to happen. So let's just apply some logic and reason, maybe tamp down the finger pointing and let's say, okay, look, we're trying to do this. Let's all point the same direction. You know, when I hear you say that, Brett, it makes me wonder, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this about, all these uh, people making the claims in the RE100s that they want to be 100% green by 2040 or 2050. Is that really practical? I know it's expensive, but is it practical? That they can get there? <laughs> yeah, I, I think for some folks it is. I do. I, I, you know, and, and look, I think, we need, I think we need charismatic leaders. I think we need um, uh, inspirational and aspirational leadership. Um, you know, you can, I'm going to come back to your answer in a second, but like one of the things that's most interesting, let's say about Elon Musk, you know, there's a lot you can talk about profitability of Tesla and the boring company and SpaceX and this, that, and the other. He's, he's an inspirational guy. I have two teenage sons. He's inspiring to them because he's bold and he tries to do big things and he's got the resources to do it and he doesn't back down. So I think there's a place in the RE100 for the Googles and Apples and GMs of the world to make these big, bold objectives and, and to go out there for it. Now, that being said, boy, there's a world of other folks who don't have the resources that they have and who have a much difficult, much more difficult, much longer history of, let's say, things to undo. I mean, imagine you're a, an oil refiner and you've got an oil refiner and you've got a hundred year old asset somewhere and that, you know, you, you don't just undo that overnight. And it's not like you can just flick a switch and change your whole business model. So how do we provide room for that? Um, the other piece is, is this idea that, you know, I mean, the, the Pareto principle gets, I think bandied about a lot and it's not necessarily applicable everywhere of this 80, 20 rule, right? That first 80% is easy to get there, but boy, squeezing out that last 20%, can get really, really expensive. It may actually not be that wise from a, a diversity and energy independence standpoint. You know, there's some national security pieces and parts to it, et cetera. So I think we, I think clear leadership from the federal government, clear leadership from those inspirational, aspirational companies make who are able to make those big, bold moves is really important. It gets us all pointed in the same direction but also leaving room for people to say, you know what, I'm only going to be able to get 80% there because of X, Y, or Z, or, you know what, I can't get there in the next 10 years. It's going to take me 30 or 40 years. Or, you know what, if I go out of business, all these other related industries also got a business. And those are real people with real jobs. 
So help me transition that. You know, I we were talking before the podcast started. Uh, my all my extended family's from West Virginia, and you know, I, I go back there a decent amount. There's some really really poor parts of West Virginia that what happened is big coal companies came in, they extracted the coal, and they also extracted all the value out of those communities. And those folks are left with not a whole lot of prospects. We have to be, I'm not suggesting we still should be burning coal. I don't think we should at all. I think we have great replacement alternatives, but we can't turn a blind eye to the idea that when you reform these markets, there are impacts. So let's just be mindful. Let's own up to that and let's talk about it. We know that that NEMA is is a is a trade organization and and it's there you know I mean and they do a great job as far as presenting information and and you know letting folks know what's going on in the North American energy markets. How could NEMA because NEMA is in a very unique position because again they do have both uh, uh, renewable and the oil and gas and the chemical side of things and so they're in a very unique position because they have all these brain trusts they have guys like yourself uh, that are very well versed in this. What role could NEMA play as far as an education standpoint and how we can uh, navigate? this energy transition? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a classic leadership role. I mean, having an outlet like this, this podcast, I think name a, I'm hosting a, a web panel on Wednesday about carbon pressing okay. uh, in power markets. And, and so I think we're trying to continue to expand beyond, you know, look, the history of NEMA is really about, was more around energy trading, you know, and it was, it was, it was gas and power markets, energy traders, there's, you know, sort of in the heyday of that, um, that's where NEMA, Western Power Trading Forum, the WSGP, you know, all of these sort of trade groups that was mostly energy traders, but it's expanded beyond that. And one of the things the board has done over the last year is really provide pathways for CNI customers to become members of NEMA. So we're bringing in load into what prior was just the trading side of the market. And I think that's a big one, opening it up, uh, having that dialogue, providing places where interested parties from the industry side, so non-power industry, the load side, the CNI side, can come in and then you know be around uh, folks from the power side who've been in the industry a long time or who know all, <laughs> who, who've uh, you know stepped in the potholes over the years and made its way out and survived. There's a lot to be learned in that. But I, I think what we miss, I think what we miss nationally is leadership. And I think NEMA has an opportunity for that. I mean, my, the other, the other folks on the board, they're, they're all fantastic. Steve, Donna as well. And I just think we have to continue to stand up and, and advocate for those things that I think are big picture, what we really need. And, and look, I, I think we've been sorely missing that from an energy policy standpoint, uh, from a science policy, from a climate leadership standpoint, it's been missing for years, uh, not just the prior administration, but administrations prior to that. It's been a lot of lip service. I don't know whether the next administration will deliver or not, but I think industry now is saying, if you look at municipalities, states, uh, and and industries, they're saying, look, we just we're just not going to wait around. We're gonna we're gonna do our own thing. We want choices, <laughs> we want price transparency, we want options, we want sustainability, uh, and so I think it's fantastic. And I think if you're in the energy, if you're in the business, like like Mike, what you've done for years and what I've done for years and, and really it's what's part and parcel to what NEMA does. 
what that means is you need good liquidity in the market. You need people that can trade and you need good counterparties that will deal fairly and are on mission. And I think when you missed a uh, mass those together, I'm very optimistic. I'm, I'm very hopeful about where we're going. I'm not pessimistic at all because I think innovation, both in policy and markets, et cetera, I'm not talking about you know, crazy wild things around crazy technological benches. I'm just talking about people innovating with their simple solutions. I think that'll that'll get us there. You mentioned you're an ecologist. You're the first. We've had engineers. We've had lawyers. We've had accountants. We've had IT specialists <laughs> on, okay, in, in the right. global space. Yeah. You are the first ecologist we've had. And I know you touched on a little bit about, um, you know, that being kind of the, you know, the heart and soul of who you are and then thus being in renewables. But how has that helped shape your career and just your decision making? I would like to say that I had this grand plan that got me here from that, but uh, but I didn't. Uh, you know, I, uh, my undergraduate degree is in biology and my master's is in endangered species ecology. And, and my first job out of grad school was with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so I was a research ecologist and had every intention of just being a scientist for the rest of my life and never wearing a tie and never, you know, uh, doing a permit for anything, just being a researcher. And, uh, and you know, things change and, and you adapt and you learn and you grow and do. And but I can look back now and see this really interesting pathway that what it, what it trained me to do, uh, being an ecologist, was uh, really kind of look at things from a systems level, but be really, really okay with nonlinearity. And what I mean by that is just stuff not always resolving out nice and clean and clear. Um, that is inherent in ecology is landscape level thinking in certain branches of ecology, but then also this, the nonlinearity of these, um, let's say somewhat different than maybe hardcore engineering or, or IT. Uh, there's a lot of noise in ecology because the systems are so complicated. And certainly that's very true for uh, any kind of climate science. It's just so unwieldy. You have to get really okay with a lot of variance and the energy industry is that way. When we're right now in the mode of this big disruption, um, I I have a personal, I mean, I have a particular lens that I look through. It's very much evolutionary biology. And you look at this kind of disruption and what can happen out of that, how adaptation works, how genetic diversity in populations really can be an interesting parallel to diversity of a generation portfolio and how you can adapt to future situations. Um, so I, I think there's nothing particularly, you know, uh, groundbreaking in there other than it just sort of gets you okay with uncertainty. It gets you okay with systems level thinking. Um, and it gets, you know, it sort of fine tunes everything through an evolutionary biology uh, approach as well. And so it's been fun to see it all come together. And it's almost like the marketplace now has landed in that spot where energy and environment and economics are all colliding. And uh, uh, it's been fun. It's been fun. I mean, I miss being out in the field, uh, which I was for a long time, but, um, but it's all right. I still get to I do a lot of cool stuff.
you mentioned battery storage and, and uh, grid-scale batteries, which is something you guys are doing at Tenasca and is a big part of what you guys are doing. Uh, a lot of the folks we've talked to here as of late. Battery storage seems to be, again, the next big domino to fall, or at least kind of the next big game-changer as far as technology-wise in the renewable space. Do you agree with that, and what are some other things on the horizon? Hydrogen, we all obviously know, is another thing that uh, is starting to come online more and more, and of course, obviously, the economics, as you've mentioned, uh, all play a factor in that, but where are we? What, what's the next, uh, in your mind, in, in Brett Estep's mind, what's the next big domino to fall uh, <laughs> as we take this step forward in the energy transition? Touch on the battery and the hydrogen piece. Those are our technological uh, solutions, and I think you know batteries are here. That's that's um, that's a given at the moment. I think there's no question how they're moving through marketplaces now. They're deployed. They're working. Whether it's the be-all, end-all solution, I don't think so. I don't think anything ever is the be-all, end-all. I think it's an important component, a really important component. It's been a missing link in power markets forever since the beginning is this ability to store energy. And so, I mean, with the exception of some pumped hydro and a a few other sort of legacy approaches, um, that will be a really important, it, it, it has an important place. I think on the hydrogen side, um, it's another one. We're probably 10 years to real sort of uh, competitive hydrogen, but I think it's an important solution to uh, taper off. You know, we can, we can co-fire it with natural gas. We can use it as a form of storage as well. Uh, certainly has transportation components to it that I think are really interesting, but really expensive right now. And, but it'll come, so that doesn't bother me. To me, this is super unglamorous, but I think it's where we have a lot of opportunity is on the policy side. And that, what I mean by that is I, I think the more we can open up markets where people have choices, where um, competitors are allowed to come in and innovate and compete, the better off we'll be. Uh, and so that competition so again, this takes you back to sort of the ecological and evolutionary biology piece of it. So in a, at a moment of disruption, you're going to have this rise of competitors. And in those rise of competitors is where real, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, speciation happens. And this, from our standpoint, is where innovation happens. So you look somewhere like Texas. Now, granted, Texas is blessed with lots of unique things. It's a single state, single ISO. Um, has uh, you know, a legislature that only meets every other year, which is helpful from a regulation standpoint. It's got great wind, great solar, a great history of development, abundant land, and a booming economy. But they also have a really great market structure, and it allows a lot of competition. It allows people to come in and money to come compete for things, investors to come compete. And I contrast that to my own market. I think it's I think the regulated model um, – is not necessary in every place anymore like it was back in the day because i think generation is getting smaller the power generation you know whether it's fuel cells or um you know aero derivatives or small rooftop solar and i think the, the more we can provide policy mechanisms to allow room for companies to come innovate that's the i think that's the special sauce the secret sauce that'll allow us to really do things super interesting as long as it's centralized command and control regulators controlling innovation uh it's going to be slow and painful and consumers are going to lose um i'm by far uh one that would say for my clients that's what i tell them all the time we're going to have the market come compete for you both on price and for innovation 
and I now as a as a rate payer in Alabama, I, I want the same thing. I want people to come compete. So the bottom line for you, Brett, is you're an advocate of deregulation in the 35 electric states that are regulated, right? And that's just, this is Brett Eastep's personal views, but uh, you know, not not Tenasta's views, but uh, absolutely. I just don't think it's necessary anymore. I, I understand why we had it at the beginning. I I think there are you know there are some cases for transmission and pipelines to be regulated still, but I think on the power generation side, we have innovated our way out of big central state. I mean, you're not going to get 3,000 megawatt coal plants anymore. You don't need it. We've got different ways to do it. There's so much money chasing those projects. We don't need big regulators guaranteeing rates of return for companies and not giving consumers choice. What we need is openness and transparency and competition. I totally agree with open and honest transparency in the marketplace. You know, that brings efficiency and everybody can feel comfortable about the price they get. Of those 35 regulated states, do you see any of them in the next five years becoming deregulated or is it still further off than that? No, I don't think so at all. And look, and I, and I think I'll apply my own standard to the process of deregulation that I would to companies, uh, you know, sort of moving over to the renewable side. It's, you know, you, you can't just wave a wand and undo all of that. There's stranded asset issues or <laughs> There are obviously some times when we've deregulated and it's not worked out well as an industry. And so, but I think this relentless path to giving control to the consumer uh, is really where we need to go. We've seen it in the music industry and publishing and television, uh, in, in airlines, you know, this idea of what happens when you do that. I think that we absolutely in the next five years will see things change. Um, so we've had stuff happen in, and these, these haven't gone the full distance, but the noise is starting to coalesce into a song in some of these places, South Carolina, Virginia, Arizona, um, Nevada, you know, you, you just continue to see this march towards people wanting to have choices. Yeah, and I think there are some transitions, like most of the WEC is, yes, still regulated states, but at least there's an ISO there. So there's this, and, and now we have the Western imbalance market. These are all steps towards a continuum that says, okay, let's figure this out. And same analogy on my coal mines in West Virginia, you know, you can't just snap your fingers and undo regulated utilities. I get that, that there are jobs at stake, people's livelihoods, but we have to have a plan, a transition. That model is not necessary anymore. And so that comes first with the market, then the imbalance, and then choice state by state. So I think Georgia, you know, I mean, again, I lived in, I've lived in Georgia three different times. Um, you know, it's my, it's my neighbor state now from here in Birmingham, Alabama. I think Georgia is a really interesting case. You know, you've got an independent commission there. I know you had Commissioner Eccles on there. They're, they use independent processes relative to, let's say some other states in the deep South, as far as independency from the, or independence rather from the commission, from the regulated utility. And now you've had this changeover in political sort of persuasion in Georgia. I think Georgia, uh, you've got a lot of solar. Um, I think Georgia could be an interesting next option. Uh, and you also, this is one we didn't talk about. It's probably a whole nother podcast in here, but you've got a lot of high tech companies now that have data centers in Georgia who are very keen to have choice and they are not super happy about their lack of choice in Georgia. And that's 
um, you know, I won't name names, but um, I know they're active in the, at, at the legislature and at the commission. It's not only that people want it, like being, being consumers, but capital wants it to. Right, you know, exactly, when you open exactly. that up, then, then, then capital, can, capital comes in and, and can start working and taking risks that right now ratepayers are stuck taking, you know, and you, you, have, you have no say in what kind of risk you take. But if you're an investor, you absolutely do. Yeah, I think it's market structure policy. Uh, again, what, what we see is capital coming in and innovating like crazy on the technology side. And I think if you open up these these regulated markets, then they'll actually innovate way down at the consumer level as well. Thank you so much once again to Brett Estep with the Tenasca Power Services Group. And Mike, I got to say, the one thing, and, and again, you know, when, with some of the guests we've had on, again, we have a lot of C-level guys on, CEOs, presidents, what have you. And of course, when you're in that level of thinking, you know, you hear a lot of the, you know, you hear similar ideas as far as kind of where things need to go with the renewable energy sector. But policy, while we've heard some discussion about it hadn't heard that being the next domino to fall some very enlightening conversation with mr Brett step today well wasn't that the truth you know we've uh, had a couple people talk policy in the past on the show but nobody really talked about that being policy being the, the thing to do in the future and so uh that was a different concept and uh enjoyable to hear and hopefully the listeners all enjoyed it Absolutely, they did. And of course, uh, being an ecologist as well, d- definitely uh, gives you a different purview uh, from where Mr. Brett Estep's doing. And of course, they're doing great work over there at the Tenasca Power Services Group. So uh, episode 24 coming up next week, a little bit of a mashup episode with Mike and I catching you up on the first five episodes that we've had in 2021. And Mike, we told the folks before the year started, we were going to hit this year with a bang. And I think we've done just that. We've had some great numbers so far. The audience, you guys have been absolutely fantastic out there sharing it downloading it letting the folks know what's going on in the renewable sector and of course we continue to try to bring the best and brightest in the renewable world each and every week here on the green insider podcast and of course mike we we let you know you can catch any of the podcast episodes over at apple itunes google play and spotify and of course we ask that if you do especially on apple itunes if you're going to check us out please leave us a five-star rating why because we promise you learn more about renewable energy than before you stopped by Give us a follow on uh, Twitter as well, at Mike underscore Nemer. That's at Mike underscore N-E-M-E-R, at eRenew2020. And, of course, you can follow me at the Freddie D. And, of course, definitely follow us on LinkedIn. That's the eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast. eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast to follow all the latest that's going on with the company. You'll be glad that you did it. Mike. Great stuff from you as always, my man. A little bit under the weather. Folks, it's not COVID. My man's dealing with some things, but he's taking care of himself just like he does each and every day. So uh, 100% to you. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the episode. Again, don't miss episode 24, the mashup episode coming out next week for the Green Insider Podcast. He's Mike Niemer. I'm Fred Davis. This is the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. Take me home.